the one shirt from this place that I remember the most had four blocks of color evenly split on the front and the back. And I'm not sure if it was a signature or not, but if you saw that shirt in the wild, you knew where it came from. The store's name was Structure. It was the men's division of The Limited, which had spun it off along with the sister store Express. And the whole place had a very European vibe, which is no surprise given that the parent company was based in Columbus, Ohio, the Milan of the Midwest. In addition to that color block rugby shirt, I remember buying a pair of pants that had a very toothy texture and were copper to match the pennies in my penny loafers, Natch. I really loved that store. I love the mall. See, I grew up in the mall, as most kids did at that time. My father had built parts of our local mall and my mother worked there and so did I at some point. It was reliable. You knew where all the stores were and we collectively mourned when a beloved favorite was forced to close or underwent a hideous corporate remodel. We tracked the differences and marked the changing of the seasons. When they allowed the carts in, the atmosphere changed. You know what I mean. The ones in the middle of the store, the kiosks. That's when we knew malls were in trouble, folks. But I digress. I have lots of feelings about malls, but what I realized I really loved about it was the underlying structure of the thing, not just the store name that, but the elegance of the design. Two overlapping loops, a food court, fountains, department store in the middle. Everything as it should be. And I've been thinking a lot about how after this year of unstructured pandemic life, that a lot of us have been seeking structure, putting rituals into place, and trying to understand what comes next. We're talking about the role structure plays in our lives this week when we find the perfect parking space and enter the mall of ideas we call the Deep Night. Oh, friends, hello, it's me, Dale Seaver, and I'm so happy to be with you tonight as your host, guide, and guru for the next hour of regrets and revelations we call The Deep Night. We come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus, and I got to see a barge full of the stuff they're dredging up, black mayonnaise, as it's known on the street, and, friends, it was glorious. I wish I had my wagon full of mason jars with me. The one time I don't have it. That's always the way, isn't it? So yes, this is a big episode, so let's get down to it. I have been a follower of Sarah Schaefer's career as a comedian and writer for some time. She was really having a moment when I first moved to New York, and I finally recall shows of hers at Union Hall and then tuning into her podcast, uh, You Had to Be There, which she co-hosted with Nikki Glaser. And the warmth and immediacy that they were able to achieve is something that made me want to do live versions of this show and made it seem possible to do so. 
And she got a gig at Jimmy Fallon, which was terrific, and then shortly after landed a hosting gig, again with uh, Glazer, called Nikki and Sarah Live, which was on MTV and produced by a dear friend of this program, Maura Madden. All along, I thought, there's a lot happening with this person. Some strong undercurrents pulling at the soul in multiple directions. I wanted to have Sarah on the show since almost the beginning of my podcasting days, and when she released a book last year, a memoir about loss and healing and a life-changing experience in the Grand Canyon entitled Grand, I picked it up and was really moved by it. And I hoped that maybe there would be an opportunity to welcome her on to talk about it. Having talked a lot about the loss of a parent and how that has impacted me and how the show has been an exercise in processing loss, the book had a certain obvious resonance uh, for yours truly, but I imagine that uh, others will find it helpful as well or just find it funny and touching as I did. We can all use a little more of that. Now, there was something technically uh, happening here, as well as my own desire to listen to what Sarah was saying, that made for maybe a more reserved presence uh, from your host on this episode. But I really wanted to leave some space for Sarah to talk at length about her experience of writing the book, the role of structure in her life, and how that affects her methods of processing grief and planning for the future. And, uh, you know, she's very funny as well. <laughs> so... Uh, I really uh, listened to a lot of it and was just enjoying myself immensely. I hope you will, too. Let's go now to my conversation with comedian and writer Sarah Schaefer. Sarah Schaefer, welcome to the deep night. Hello. <laughs> How are you today, Sarah? Oh, just piddling, you know? <laughs> piddling. Yeah. That's what my mom would always say when I would, what are you doing? Just piddling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I just got a new order of masks, so it's pretty exciting around here, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. What, what type? What type you got? Well, I think I finally got it after a year. Uh, of course, uh -huh. now they're telling me I got to wear two, so I'll never catch Double it up. Yep. Double it up. This one's got the nose thing and the chin thing happening. So above and below. Uh, you were using masks that didn't cover your nose or chin before? Just a lip band. <laughs> no, That's all you I just... had. It was a lip band, a little piece of duct tape that you put over that, your mouth. That's nice. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, this one has the wire for the nose. It goes above, and it, it hugs the chin nicely because I was it was creeping one direction or the other. Anyhow... I love that's it. Our that's our reality. Uh, joining us from Los Angeles, are you? Yes. Yes. And uh, I wondered if there was a difference that you were able to register between West Coast Sarah and East Coast Sarah. Um, West Coast Sarah is definitely more um, free feeling. Um, uh -huh. East Coast Sarah. Now, there's two East Coast Sarahs, though. There's New York Sarah. Yeah. And then there's the rest of the East Coast, Sarah. <laughs> New <laughs> right. York City is a whole other thing, you know. Um, New York City, Sarah. I mean, I've been gone seven years from New York City. Um, and I do, I have felt nostalgic for it at times, especially when I go back, or especially when I'm watching a show or movie that features New York. Yes. I get whimsical about it. <laughs> you know, um, almost all of my 20s. I, I was there for 13 years. So I, it, and it was during an, 
just very intense parts of my life. Like a lot changed and happened while I lived there. And there was just so much experience there. Um, and when I visit, I feel incredible nostalgia now when I go back and visit. It is just in, really intense. It's like almost too much. After a few days, I have to leave. Like the memories, you know, every, I don't know if you've visited somewhere that has a lot of memory and how intense that feeling is. It hurts, but it's wonderful at the same time. Yes. Uh, depending on the memory. And New York has so many memories, every type of emotion I experienced there. And um, I could walk the city for hours and just every block has some memory attached to it. And the city changes so quickly and so fast that then you also feel melancholy because places that meant something to you are long gone. You start to, the memory starts to become foggy um, and then you feel sad that because you've been gone, you're losing that. Right. Um, and so I obviously haven't visited there. So I actually visited, the last time I visited was almost a year ago. Exactly. Mm. Um, I went early last year before the pandemic got kicked off. And, um, <laughs> and that visit was really a good one. There was some, a lot of those memories and feelings were happening as they always do. But I was staying with an old friend and my husband was with me and it was just, um, it was a nice trip that one. Mm -hmm. And, um, the weather was unusually, unusually warm for that time of year. And so I had a nice, a lot of nice outdoor walking time there. Um, but yeah, uh, when I go back again, I'm like yearning, I'm yearning to travel anywhere. Like I, I want to go anywhere right now. <laughs> right, um, right. I used to travel so much for comedy and haven't for so long and um, I miss it. And so I do yearn to go back to New York and um, I like, now I kind of want to go back and re-experience memories, like recreate experiences or things like, uh, like going in just stopping into a spontaneous restaurant or bar that's like tucked into right. a, a nook and it's dark yes. and cozy <laughs> i like miss that <laughs> element of new york you know i'm um, eating in restaurants is my truly my favorite thing and the pandemic has really fucked me up in that way yes um, certainly it's put the kibosh on that um we're living in a new <laughs> we're living in a new apartment ish for us and uh it's much smaller than our old apartment and it's much nicer but it's much smaller and yes. we're still getting used to the shared space <laughs> well uh, on that topic let me ask you this because yeah. i asked this of all of our guests that are on the show right at the top which is uh given everything you've just said about uh, uh missing new york and wanting to come back for a little bit would you be interested in joining a commune that i've started here in brooklyn no Okay. Uh, Fair I don't need to know anything about it. I'm sure it's wonderful. Um, but I, dev I never want to live there again. I got it. Okay. I got it. Yes. I, and I don't know. Uh, I'm in my 40s now. And I, I don't know. LA doesn't feel like where I want to be forever either. You no. know, when I hit my 50s, I, I probably want to be figuring out what's that dream life. You know, right. that's the, right. I have a very clear goal now for the next 10 years of my life. I want to 
find a place to live that sets up the life that I can enjoy until I die. You know, that right. is where I'm at now, which is so crazy that I'm here. <laughs> Sneaks <laughs> up on you where you're like, oh, what's happening when I retire? Like that is not something in your 30s. I mean, not me at least. I'm yep. sure there's some yeah. fucking nerds out there like checking their 401k every day or whatever. <laughs> right. But um, I didn't really think about that until that's, the past that's not the years. path we've chosen yeah yeah and yeah. like really being like wait a minute like this is coming up quick and <laughs> yeah. i don't want to yes. be stuck like i don't want to be you know i i think i've settled into uh, a groove with my career where i'm like okay this is a good place to be i'd love to achieve more um yeah. but i'm in a good place and if i if I, you know, plug along at this pace into my early fifties, that's when it feels like Hollywood <laughs> might stop. I, I'm, and I'm talking ageism in Hollywood is bad. Like, yes, I've heard. And I'm not talking. I'm not even talking about on camera. I'm yeah, talking about else. behind the camera. Like every writer's room I'm in, I'm the oldest person, and this has been this way for years now. <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> I look younger than I am, at least for right now, like any day, you know, right now I don't have any makeup on. I probably look my age, but like when I'm like done up, people are like, oh, you're 42. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> which I don't take, I don't even like, I don't take that really as a compliment. I'm just sort of like, you're just reminding me that if I, wh like what happens if I do look my age? <laughs> right, right. Or am <laughs> I in trouble? <laughs> like, what? you know, and like, you know, especially women. I mean, there's so few women in my field to begin with proportionally and, and I, I, uh, in, in, in writer's rooms in the, in the type of writer's rooms I'm in, I'm usually one, the only woman, if not like one of two mm -hmm. and writer's rooms are smaller and smaller now. So sometimes being the only woman means it's 50, 50, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but being in all these writer's rooms, it's like, you know, you don't see a lot of older women, and that's probably in part because there just weren't many that were, yeah. you know, in the pipeline before me. Um, but there are older men, but they're usually in leadership roles. Like, so I'm like, I gotta, I, I have had leadership roles and I'm, I'm getting more of those. And, um, but I'm like, I need some power, you know, I need to, uh, if I'm going to make a leap or last past like 50. I'm like, am I going to keep getting hired? Like there are some real questions at play here about what yeah. happens in the next 10 years. So to answer your question, no, I don't want to move to your commune because I have other plans <laughs> and it fine. is commune like, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe the woods, maybe there's a porch involved, maybe yeah. some uh, shade of a tree. Oh yeah. There's a yeah. little bit of land, some acreage. Yes. I like this um, plan too. And <laughs> Uh, there's a pasture for goats and yep. there is a, a clearing that I can make my micro farm. Yeah. This is oh. a legit, you know, a yeah. lot of people dream about having the farm, little farm life or whatever. This is actually a real thing that um, my husband and I are, are planning for. And like, I am using the next 10 years to learn in yeah. small scale, how to garden, which I've been gardening for since I moved to LA. I actually had a little bit of gardening in Brooklyn occasionally. It was hard. Yeah. I, 
my little backyard I had didn't get enough sun to grow anything interesting, but I had compost and I had yep. like herbs, you know? So I got some real basic stuff going, but now I'm in advanced, you know, home gardening where I'm like, I have worms and uh, <laughs> I have a grow light in the garage and I'm growing seedlings to get them ready oh. for the raised bed and, you know, like yeah. composting and, that's you know, I'm doing, I'm doing it up, but yeah. <laughs> I, this is all in preparation for when I can really do it my, you know, like that's what I'm like prepping for is like, you know, we don't own property, so we can't like rip things up and do things the way I want to. So um, I'm, I'm working with what I have, but I, my, the dream is to have like a little bit of land that I can really like, I want to grow my own, almost all my own food. I love it, Sarah. That's a, a wonderful vision. And on the yeah. subject of kind of uh, nurturing, taking time, uh, planting things, uh, achieving things, moving forward, uh, yeah. I want to uh, thank you for this book that you've written, oh, uh, thank you. Grand, because uh, it is uh, such a, uh, and I mean this uh, with profound gratitude, I really uh, love the book. And mm -hmm. uh, I found it both uh, especially powerful as a companion to grief and as an insight into who you are as a person. Oh, and I would nice, recommend it uh, nice truly to anyone. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anybody going through a tough time, which is everyone right now, uh, would be uh, better off to have this book nearby. Oh, that that's so nice. That really means a lot to me. I'm finding that my book, people who like it, really like it. And most people who read it are those people. <laughs> I would I think so. <laughs> it is. It's really nice. I mean, I'm very proud of it. I know I'm, I know I made something good. It's like my life. It's my truth in a way that I've never put out there before. I laid it all out on the line really. And, um, and it was so hard to do and for it to be out in the world is just such a like blessing yeah. Uh, to use the word blessing, I will also soon be using the word journey. So buckle up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the right. journey that I was on. Um, no, and the gratitude I feel. No, I, I, I don't. Um, I don't know if I'll ever write another book. I don't even know if I want to. It was so hard, like, and traumatic in some ways. Um, yeah. yeah. But. Uh, one thing that was, you know, there's disappointments or victories with every piece of creative work you put out in the world. You don't know what's going to happen with it. It's like setting a baby in a little basket and sitting it down the river and hoping it makes it, you know, like, um, right. are people and, still doing that? <laughs> yeah. People, it's yeah. a lot of basket baby, uh, basket babies out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> Put I wish I had there. cashed in on my basket babies yeah. earlier. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. You put it out there and you don't know what's going to happen. And um, with the pandemic, putting my first book out during a pandemic, it's hard to compare it to another experience. Um, I know books are tough. Like people don't, you know, it's not like a movie coming out or something like that. People are like, oh, book, a book. You want me to read what? Um, but um, you know, I, I just set it out in the world and the people that have found it have loved it. And, uh, I don't have any measuring stick. I don't know how, um, 
how successful it has been. Like I can tell it's not a bestseller. Like I think I would know that. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> pretty sure it's not a a bestseller, but it it I don't know what to compare to. So I think it was in terms of a marketing thing. I think it was successful, but. Um, well, I found it immensely successful, obviously. And as somebody who has sort of followed your career and known you professionally a bit, you know, from the outside, and I will admit to being one of your Kickstarter backers. Yeah, way back in the day. Gauche to do, but <laughs> color yeah. me gauche. Uh, yes, um, uh, that uh, I've known you that way. And then to have this other thing uh, presented really gives us a fuller picture of who you are, and I so appreciate that. Um, were there other memoirs that you looked to uh, as a kind of inspiration? or Because sometimes you read one and you think, I don't need to know any more about that person. <laughs> um, you know, I, I weirdly am not a big reader, okay? I'm more of a writer. I'm more of a creator. Yeah. I'm more of a maker and a doer. Um, and not, that isn't against anyone. I mean, thank God. It's just like with comedy. Like, I don't watch a lot of comedy. I want to create comedy. Um, right. And so there's no judgment against people who are the consumers of these things. Like that, they make other things, you know, like they, they do other work in the world. They, they, they find fulfillment in other ways, but, but I, so I wasn't a, I was never a big reader. I was always, I read a lot, but I'm not like a bookworm, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm more of like a researcher. Like I like to read something cause I'm researching something. I like to read articles. Right. I like to, you know, um, and so I hadn't read a ton of memoirs. I'd read a few over the years. I mean, I majored in English. Okay. Like I've read books, please. I can read. Okay. Everybody stop <laughs> judging me. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> Getting a lot of calls coming in. There's a lot. There are people who are like, if you don't read a lot, then you can't possibly be a good writer. I think that's absolute bullshit. I think that like you, you can, <laughs> Some, some artists don't like to consume other art because they want theirs to be, and not that I'm like that, but I, I am like that with stand-up. I don't like to consume a lot of stand-up because it's very easy to pick up on other people's inflections. Right. Um, right. And so sometimes I'll be in positions where people are like, yeah, that joke, you know that that's like a Jim Gaffigan joke. And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> Thanks for telling me. <laughs> I don't watch every single special that comes out. That's not how I am. I, I consume enough to know who the person is and I'll see shows when I, I'll watch other comedians when I'm out. But right. anyway, so um, I read, so when I started working on the book, I was like, I need to read other memoirs to just sort of get the, get, get the gist, you know? <laughs> right. So I Google best memoirs. <laughs> which was a huge mistake because the best memoirs are like the ha most harrowing, like crazy life stories that you could never, ever match. And like, or they're masters. They're like the people who this was what their, you know, God given gift was to write a memoir. Right. And so I'm reading books where I'm like this, my life is so boring compared to this person. Um, and one page of their life is more interesting than my entire life. And so I got, I had a real mental breakdown at first where I was like, why am I even writing this? No one cares. This is so stupid. I, my life is so boring. I'm so like, nothing's ever happened to me that anyone would care about. 
I sound like I'm complaining when I've had a pretty good life, you know, that those thoughts are like flooding me. And so then I, um, and the books I'm talking about are like the glass house, which is an absolutely wonderful book, but damn, that girl, that woman's life is much more intense than mine. You know, (laughs) like, um, um, Mary Carr, um, the liars club, like, you know, just books that are, you're just like, they're held up as these incredible timeless classics. And I'm like trying to achieve that. It's like, it's like fi- deciding you want to do stand up for the first time and watching, you know, Richard Pryor and being like, okay, that's what I have to achieve <laughs> right. right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. um, Better so to go to an open mic or something and say, yeah, oh, like there's I an in between. Yeah, like of like <laughs> watching people in various stages of development, but also different types of books. Like I, I shouldn't have been reading these harrowing, very dramatic, you know, I'm not that I shouldn't have. I mean, they're wonderful books and I'm glad I read them. And it is good to read, you know, how people are able to tell stories from their life in different ways and achieve certain ways of storytelling that's very helpful. But like, then I would, then I swung the pendulum and I read some, you know, memoirs slash books of essays by comedians that I know, you know, like John Hodgman. I love his writing yeah. and his essays are not about surviving extreme poverty and abuse. You know, like they are, <laughs> right. they're about, um, they're about just more poetic, like, not mundane because I would never say because they're very deep, but they're just very deep observations about, you know, buying a, a home in Maine, you know? Right. Or, and also dealing with uh, loss and uh, dealing mm-hmm. with the kind of like the experience of moving through the world from his perspective, which is yeah. a really wonderful one. And he's able right. to articulate that so beautifully. So what I landed on was like after reading a bunch of different types of memoirs and by different types of people with different types of stories and types of storytelling um, was that every story is worth telling because you're unique and you are you and, and um, it's how you tell it that matters. Um, I was trying to find what was important in my life. You know, what, right. what is relevant, what is going to sell copies, you know, that kind of stuff. And I just had to like, just shove that voice aside and be like, no, 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 no. I'm going to tell my story. It's valid. It's worthy. And that in the way the book is very meta. Um, the story in the book in the Grand Canyon is actually about my journey of writing this book. Um, yeah. I couldn't say that because it would have gotten real, real hard to understand <laughs> and to meta. But, you know, when I went into the Grand Canyon, I had just gotten my first round of feedback about the book. Um, mm. I'd already started writing it. And I was devastated because the feedback was, it wasn't like cruel or anything. It was just, and it was, I just knew it was right. You know, when you get feedback that's yeah, immediately I mean, I remember getting that email. I was lying in bed. I like got in the morning, you know, from the East Coast. And I was like, ooh, I got my notes back. You know, and I open up the phone. And I'm like, ooh, what did she think? Oh, God, here we go. And I like open it and I'm just dead. I'm like spiraling in bed. I'm crying, screaming. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my fucking God. I, 
I can't fucking do this. And I mean, I knew every word she wrote was right. Yeah. You know, like this, my editor is like very honest, cold feedback, you know, cold as in like, you know, just, she wasn't mincing her words, but she wasn't being cruel either. It was just true. And yeah. it cut me deep. And, and, and I just felt this overwhelming panic of like, I, because writing it was so painful to begin with. And it felt like I had to start over. And so I was like, oh my God, I have to go through that again. I can't do this. Little did I know I was going to have to go through it like eight more times. You know, like I feel like I wrote three or four books. That's how many words I wrote. Like, you know, in the end of, you know, everything I, I had read books about like how to write memoirs and how to write books and what the, I read all kinds of articles about what the processes are like and gotten advice from all kinds of people and, and everything they said was true, but it's just, and you know it going into it, but it's different when you're experiencing it. Um, and that's such a, I know that the things I'm saying are very cliche. It's like what every writer goes through, but, um, but damn, I mean, it was a <laughs> <It's> journey. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, uh, the book, uh, kind of goes back and forth between your journey through the Grand Canyon and, uh, sort of a family history that you lay out. And, uh, it also just, I mean, it deals with loss in a very honest and human way. Um, and there's a lot to relate to if one has to wade through grief. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and in a few weeks, and I'm sure you get this a lot where people then sort of identify or over-identify and want to share their stories, but uh, I'll be one of them and just say that it's we're coming up on 25 years since my mother's passing, mm. and uh, one would think that uh, you know that wound would be healed, <laughs> and uh, mm. quite frankly, it's a little annoying that I, know. Uh, I was told that that would be the case, and yet it is still just as raw as ever. Just that whirlwind of feelings that comes at you at all yeah. times, um, not yeah, unlike yeah. the rapids of the Colorado. Yeah, unexpected uh, grief moments, like where you're just triggered, and the faucet is opened, and it's all rushing back, and it's like you, it's like it's just happening again. It's that pain of the initial loss is so easy to tap into again. You know, it just yeah, it doesn't ever go away. It's why um, my one of my favorite movies of all time is The Babadook, and. <laughs> Because it's a metaphor. People say it's all kinds of metaphors, but I choose to believe it's a metaphor for grief slash depression, like whatever it is, monster in your basement that you're dealing with. Um, and I, I couldn't, I've never seen anything present um, the feeling and horror of grief in a way, because I love horror, but like of just that there's this monster that, um, haunts you and stalks you and and then at the I don't want to give away the ending but the ending really got me it was just like god that's so true it's just so uh it's always there and yeah. um some days it's really really mat nasty and some days it's very quiet and I remember in high school I went to some church thing and we were sitting around in a circle you know sharing sharing circles. I really love sharing circles. Um, mm -hmm. and somebody, some woman, you know, she was probably in her thirties or forties was crying. She was like, it's the 10 year anniversary of my father dying. And I remember being a little punk and going 10 years. 
get over it, lady. Jesus, get your shit together. Get yourself together. Right. <laughs> I had right. no fucking idea what I was talking about. <laughs> right. well, so anyway. Uh, yes, yes. Well, uh, I was rereading the book a little bit last night, and uh, you described something where I, I had caught it the first time through, but it, it stuck out again for me this time where uh, I would also have these dreams where my mother was alive again, but still sick. And so mm. there was that moment where you had to say, okay, uh, I, I need, I'd rather not she come back. You know, you think, oh, yeah. I'd like them to come back to life, but I don't want to go through that again. And yeah. I don't know if that is like the body, the mind somehow working on us to gain acceptance and to get to a place where it's like, you, you got to deal with what's happening here. You got to yeah. go forward or, or what? Bodies are mysterious. Well, it, it's... I have a lot of friends who have written about grief. Um, not a lot. I have a few friends who've written books about losing a parent that I've read and loved, um, but was struck by how different everybody's experience with it is and how many people I know who've lost someone, um, they like dreaming about them. They They see them in you know, birds and butterflies and shit. And I always thought I would be that type of person because I am very, like, I'm very open to, like, magic and, like, you know, um, wonder in the world. And I'm yes. I'm looking for meaning everywhere and, and inspiration and goosebumps. Like, I love that kind of shit. And it was so shocking to find out that, I was never, I have still to this day, never felt like my mom's spirit is with me, like the way that people describe it. Yeah. You know, like, oh, there was a rainbow just at the moment. You know, <laughs> there was a, there was a butterfly or there, you know, that bird always perches, that's mom visiting. Um, you know, right. like something fell as mom, you know, like never have I ever felt that way yeah and I've, I've been in situations where i feel like this has been this has worked out well and i attribute it to some kind of guidance from beyond but less so the sign of like oh this uh, an owl has arrived <laughs> right, right. I, they needed I, it. yeah and like we my family always talks about mom mom is looking down laughing at this situation you know or like um you know, my mom would always get, for some reason, she had like really interesting um, parking luck. Like <laughs> she would get the front row spot and always the closest spot. And she would, when we would enter the parking lot to the mall, she would go, Jesus, please give us a good parking spot. She would say a little prayer out loud to Jesus. And then one would open up and we'd be like, mom, how do you do this? You know. Um, so sometimes like when I'm parking, you know, and I get a good spot, I'll just think, thanks, mom. You know, like, <laughs> but that's more of a funny memory that I'm laughing about. It's not like I actually believe that or feel that. Um, right. But in the book, when I talk about, um, you know, wanting to see her in a cloud or like feel her down in the Grand Canyon, have a spiritual experience where I feel like she's talk talking to me or I hear her voice somehow. Um, it was really when I heard her through my sister's voices that made me 
really go, oh, that she's alive in me and in us. I'm going to start crying. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, That's where she is, you know? Right. And that's where I feel her the most is in me, like in who I am. And, um, and like my voice, I know that I look like her and I talk like her, um, more so than my sisters who have like different color eyes and hair. Like they look, they just look a little more like my dad, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, but I really do look like her and there's pictures of me and her at certain ages where it's like, Oh my God, it, it, you can't tell who it is in the picture. Um, and so that I feel very lucky to have that. Cause it's like, Oh, I'm sort of embodying her. Right. You know, those, those are good moments to have. Yeah. Good things to hold on to. Um, yeah. uh, and it can, and it can still come up in, in funny. It's nice to be kind of surprised by it. <laughs> I think, mm-hmm. you know, to, oh, there, there we go. As opposed to looking for it um, when it kind of just uh, sneaks up is nice. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I, I, and, and it's, it's promoting this book, you know, writing a book about grief is one thing, but then that doesn't end. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you have to promote the thing. You have to talk the thing yeah. about it. Ha- has that been difficult or has it been kind of nice to have to keep revisiting these uh, memories and things? No, I've really liked um, talking about the book and, um, promoting it. Um, it's, I really, really am. So it's another loss of the pandemic of a grief that I've had to a little mini grief. I've had to experience like a tiny pinprick of one, um, which is not being able to do the like book in-person book tour, um, and like hometown events, like we were going to do this big thing in Midlothian or Richmond where I grew up and then something in Flagstaff where my sisters are and all the Grand Canyon people come and like the guides and like have, have like a thing where I can sell it, like, you know, show off my sisters and my dad to like, <laughs> in a moment where I sign books and talk to people from my past, like that I was really looking forward to that. And then just like, you know, the bookstore in New York or a bookstore in Seattle. Like, um, I, really really wanted to do that and had and we had a plan like a book tour and then in the fall I was following up I was going to do a traditional stand-up tour as like a tail end sort of cross promotion and all of that obviously went to shit and um you know I did some zoom events which were fine but like 30 people showing up to a bookstore would have felt like I was like a fucking celebrity. Like I would have been like, hell yeah, very <laughs> successful event. Um, but 30 people showing up to his zoom makes you want to die. You know, like, you're like what the fuck? everybody, you're doing nothing. Anybody could have come to this from Idaho. To, you know, and, you, and I put it out on my Twitter. Nobody fucking came, you know, like that. That was a little bit depressing. Um, but there were some very lovely book events that like just made me feel very, and my family would come to them and be on them. And that was like really nice. And, um, but yeah, and promoting it, you know, um, I mean, it's, you have, you in order to achieve a huge project as difficult as writing a memoir, um, you, I, in my mind, I had to like have like rewards in my mind, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I imagined me going on the today show and like 
Hoda being like, I loved your book, you know, like I imagined um, maybe doing a, a late night talk show, sit down interview. Like I would just imagine things to be like, there's a reward coming. It may not happen, but like, what if? Yeah. So make it as good as you possibly can, you know, um, and the book tour and all the book events, the things I just mentioned. And then to not have any of those things happen, like not even the easy ones <laughs> that I could set up myself. <laughs> That was tough. That was yeah. really tough. Um, but one, just, one, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say one uh, fortunate thing about this moment is that uh, I think it will really speak to people because people have been going through such difficult times. And as a as a resource for either loss, but also, you know, if, if you're stuck inside and you just want to think about the Grand Canyon for a bit, <laughs> well, you can go there virtually. <laughs> <laughs> through yeah. through the pages and uh, but it addresses both of those things and uh, I was certainly happy to have it at being stuck here in a small apartment to to be able to go down the river and imagine what that's like yeah it was really um I had no intention of writing about the Grand Canyon when I went on that trip the trip just happened to have been planned and took place in the middle of me writing this book um and had, you know, didn't go into it thinking like, I need to take notes. I'm going to write a book about this. And um, it wasn't until like a month or two after the trip that I just couldn't stop thinking about the trip and what it meant and all the um, imagery and the metaphor and stuff. And I was like, God, this is all swirling with the, the themes of what the story I want to tell. And so I thought about it and I was like, gosh, I think that's what I could do. I could write about the Grand Canyon trip and then dip back into memories somehow. I didn't know how I was going to structure it. Um, it was very overwhelming. I've never done anything like that before. And so I asked my editor and she was like, I think this sounds promising. And I was like, you know, the memory of the trip is so fresh in my mind and it has adventure and it has visuals that are so easy for me to describe. It has dialogue, it has story, you know, it has all these things. I was like, that's what the book needs. It needs lightness and it needs a, it needs some fun. I'm a comedian. Like, you know, right. um, everything I was writing felt so serious. And so, um, uh, we, she said, try it. And so I did. And then, um, with the help of another editor, I was able to really get the back and forth structure nailed down. Um, you know, and she was like, this is a really, like, after I turned in the first draft, so it was like my second or third draft was the one with the Grand Canyon stuff in it. She was like, this is a really ambitious and challenging way of doing this. You know, she was always so like harsh, like, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, you've really chosen a tough path, but good luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I was interested. She, there was this, always I... like a threat in her voice where it's just like, if, <laughs> if this next draft doesn't change significantly, I don't know. And she would kind of trail off and I'd be like, what i'm gonna to have to give the money back like what are we talking about like <laughs> it's not gonna come out what are you doing to me well i'm interested because you mentioned the the structure of the thing and some of that coming from external places um uh, and the idea of this reward system um what role do you think the structure plays for you just in your life are you somebody that uh, seeks it out that needs it um or, or is it okay to kind of go with the flow just structure in general. Yeah. Um, I like both. Like I go back. It is interesting. Like I go back and forth because um, writing for TV, the first 
TV job. So when I first moved to New York, you know, I, I had a day job and it was just day in, day out, same shit Mm -hmm. for four and a half, five years. Then I got this job, like doing a little show for AOL. And that was very, that was a day in, day out every day, you know, no breaks type job. It was really weird and wild and like a great adventure. And I loved it. Uh, But it was day in, day out. And then fast forward years later to working for Fallon. Um, That was the first TV show I had worked on and like for real. And the schedule was such, or it was like, you know, if we had to work more than five or six weeks consecutively, people were like, this is fucking hell. Like, (laughs) and for a daily talk show, it is, it's a fucking grind. It's really hard. I mean, you watch those shows, there's a lot that goes into every episode. It's crazy. So we would work really hard for four to six weeks and then get two weeks off. So it was, we call it hiatus. The next hiatus is coming, you know, and then in the summer we'd get more, um, like more frequent hiatuses, um, hiati. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, I started to real, I was like, this, this is a schedule I like. I really like this. I were, I like working really, really hard to the point of insanity and then having two weeks of nothing and just having no, nowhere to go or be. So I really have become accustomed to, um, and now it's become even not working on a show like Fallon that's on year long, all year long. Um, all the different types of shows I've worked on, having my own show, writing for a bunch of shows, doing stand-up tours, it's always something different. I don't know what's coming. I've told people like the people I'm living with now on this property are like, I was like, when I first moved here, I was like, I just finished two really crazy jobs. And I was like, I don't have anything. I'm going to take the rest of the year off. And I was like, but one day I'll get a call. And then the next day I'll have a job and you won't see me for three months. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Like December 22nd, I got a call. They were like, Hey, we, do you want to do this writing job? Yes. Okay. It starts Monday. Can you start? Yep. And I've been working 12 hour days since then, you know, and that'll, you know, it's like, I like that a lot. It's yeah. part of why pandemic was a little bit easier for me to handle. I mean, easier for me than almost everyone in this country. I'm very lucky. I'm in a great position in life. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, but in, you know, all my siblings and most of my friends have jobs and like them having less structure in their life has been very challenging where I'm like, oh, I can go a really long time without having anything to do. And I can be very busy with my stuff (laughs) yeah, and my guard. I'm good with hobbies and like, you know, waking up and not knowing what I'm going to do that day. I love it. But then that runs out, that runs out. And then I'm like, I got to get my fucking shit together. (laughs) It's part of why writing a book was so hard is because there was less structure. Um, There, it was part of why it was so hard to write a book is because there was not enough um, structure in that process, I think. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of structures, could you just, and I don't want to, take too much time uh, of your time but um could you tell me about the dollhouse project yes um so that was one of the things that i so i renovated my dollhouse 
from my childhood. It was like my right. dollhouse that I got when I was nine years old and it was really, really beat up. I got it. Um, it was up in the attic of my house um, that my, you know, the house that I lived in for the second half of my childhood. It was mm -hmm. in the attic of that house. And when my dad sold the house in 2016, um, we all, all the siblings, we went and helped him pack it up and we went through everything and divided it up amongst us. And, you know, I still lived in LA and like in a really small apartment. So there were some things that I didn't have room for yet. Um, didn't know how we were going to get it across country. So, and my two sisters live in Arizona. So we decided to go in on like a storage unit together. Got to like two years later of paying for this storage unit. Um, you know, I was like, I want that stuff. I don't have anything right. of mom's. I don't, you know, like I want it. And so it was like Christmas stuff. And I was just like, it's just sitting there and I'm worried it's getting, you know, fucked up because it's not a climate controlled storage unit. And like, and so I went and did all the planning to like get a moving truck and do all, all this shit to get it across country. And it was a pain in the ass, but it was worth it because now I just have so much of her and my childhood around me now. And like, it's, it makes my living situation so much better, but the dollhouse was part of it. And my intention was to fix it up and give it to someone. Um, cause my, I have eight nieces and nephews and one of them, it doesn't, it isn't, is older and not interested. Uh, the other is got another dollhouse from my older sister. So like, you know, there was nobody to give it to in my immediate periphery, but I was like, I still want to fix it up. I just want to do it. Well, yeah. then, you know, that took like three years to like have the time and the space for it. And then, so this was the time when we moved to this new place and I had like a whole little, um, there's a little garage out there with, that they let me use to like fix it up. And um, I've never really done anything like that before. Um, but it was one of the most, I just went into a zone. I mean, I was like <laughs> gone. I, nothing could stop. Nothing could distract. I mean, I was spending 12 plus hours a day working on this dollhouse, um, shingles, That's doing all the little repairs, putting up wallpaper, flooring. Like it was so much <laughs> painting it. I mean, it was such. It's very detailed. It was very meditative and, and almost like very tedious, but I like repetitive, tedious stuff. That's part of why I like cross stitch and things. There's just like a million tiny X's following a pattern. I love following I love counting, you know, like, uh -huh. like, okay, three over, we're going to do this. Like, I just like that kind of um, handiwork. Um, and it was so rewarding to share it with people. It was like one of the most successful things I've done on social media in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and I really tapped into something. People really enjoyed it. So like, I'm definitely going to do more dollhouse stuff. I have some things in the works already, like, that is involving another a new dollhouse, a new process, and maybe some other stuff inspired. And by so it. now, where where is the dollhouse now? You you have so, it there at the place? No, I um, decided I wanted to give it away. Even though there is a little girl that lives here, they um, the parents felt they didn't have room for it, and and that it would also be good for her to learn about giving something, you know, putting this work into something and giving it away to someone who doesn't have. Mm. as much in the world. And so through some connections through an organization called Alice's kids, this isn't what they do normally, but the, the founder saw my, um, 
my dollhouse stuff and my plea to like help me find a family to give this to um i was connected with a like the right situation like it was you know because there was one family that was like well we're technically homeless not the family didn't say this but a social worker's like they're technically homeless i was like no that's and it isn't anything to do with me and my ego and like the dollhouse being messed up like i was like once i give it to someone it's theirs but when you yeah. don't have permanence and housing with a child could unintentionally be traumatized if that house was, if the dollhouse was like, if they were evicted and it was thrown on the street and like, there's a lot of trauma around objects um, with homelessness for children um, mm-hmm. because there's no permanent place for it and they lose things. They don't get to take something to the next place. And so I was like, it needs to be at least somebody with stable housing, you know, yeah. um, because I don't want to unintentionally harm or burden because it was huge. I mean, it was like three <laughs> feet tall, two feet deep. Like, I mean, it, it was huge. And so, you know, um, I didn't want it to be a burden on the people I gave it to. So um, this family um, I was connected with could not have been sweeter. They had an eight year old daughter. And uh, I think just given little bits of information I was I was able to take it to them. I saw the house. It, I think this might have been a place also where the woman did childcare for other children. So it's like this is a place mm-hmm. where children will enjoy this for years and, and years. Nice, what a nice way to also honor your mother's legacy, who was also yeah. very devoted to giving and to yeah. uh, helping others. So it's really a, yeah. a beautiful it project. Was- it felt really good to do all that. And I didn't, you know, there was a moment where I was like, God, I love this so much. Why am I giving this away? But then I was like, I don't have fucking room for this. I, I don't want it. And I haven't thought about it like once since I gave it to someone. I just want a new one. <laughs> I want a new one to play, to make. And, you know, I'm like, maybe I'll just renovate or make dollhouses and give them away to people. Cause I don't, I mean, one day on my, on my, um, my farm, Right. There will be a dollhouse studio, like a whole <laughs> room with dollhouses, a village. <laughs> yes, I see it for you, Sarah, and that's wonderful. Um, uh, I think you'll get there. Um, I, I so appreciate you taking some time this morning oh, to talk you. with I've, me. I've dominated the conversation and not allowed you to speak at all. Well, I wanted I wanted to hear from you, uh, so... <laughs> I'm very happy to to have had this time. Um, and again, thank you for the book. Um, I, I hope that it continues oh. to find new audiences out there because it really is uh, wonderful. Yes. If you're, if you're listening and you pick up a copy, um, let me know what you thought. Um, leave a review. I don't read the reviews, but I guess they help, you know. <laughs> right. Keep it, keep it buzzing, knows? you know. Um, That's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I... I love hearing from people who read the book and enjoyed it. I haven't heard much. I've only heard from like one person who didn't enjoy it, which was really wild where I was like, someone just left a a comment on one of my Instagram pictures that was like, I hate to say this, but I really didn't like your book. I'm like, do you, I didn't respond, but I'm like, do you hate to say it? Or do you love to say it? (laughs) Yeah. If you hated to say it, you wouldn't say it. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Well, even though we are uh, maybe conditioned as a people in comedy to only hold on to that one terrible <laughs> comment or experience. Interestingly, uh, I didn't hold on. I didn't hold on okay. to it. And I haven't good. read. I've stayed off like Goodreads, 
uh, or those those type of Amazon reviews, like because that's where people really let loose and they, you know, it's like the Yelp <laughs> of books. I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm not yeah, reading one need, of those. I even because you, you know that. once I once I read one good one, that is what I I just I just know from experience of, of being a person out there in the com- doing comedy and being online that in the end I don't need to read reviews. Yeah. And if someone sends me a message saying, I loved your book, that's different. Cause that's some, I mean, again, only one person and they left a comment. They didn't send me a message. If someone reaches out to me about my book, it's going to be positive. That's all I need. I don't need, to then also go, let me see what a person who doesn't know that I'm reading this thinks. <laughs> yes, that sounds very healthy and sounds like you have some good boundaries. <laughs> so <laughs> Many years wonderful. of therapy. Have yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much uh, for being yeah. with us. It's just been terrific. I mean, your voice is very soothing. By the way, I wanted to say your voice, since yes. you've read the book, your voice reminds me of Mike. The uh-huh the youth pastor that I had growing up who I'm still in contact with and love dearly. Your voice reminds me of his voice. So this has been very pleasant and I, I should have oh. let you talk more so that I can oh, hear it more. Yeah. <laughs> well. You have a very That's similar lovely. laugh. It's really nice. I, I'm going to tell all, <laughs> tell everyone I know you need to, because oh, Mike good. doesn't do a podcast. He's in his seventies now. And <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I'll be I'll be happy to uh, entertain those, and I I always love giving off youth pastor vibes <laughs> wherever I go. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. So. Mike was not your typical youth pastor. He sounded like you. He was like you know an old, not that you're old, but like a, a very wise sounding man who you know looks like yes. he you know should be a shepherd. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I can't see you, but I'm like assuming you. you look like you have sheep. <laughs> yes, many. <laughs> I, I know what you look like from from <laughs> from this from online and stuff, but I, yeah. I'll have to Photoshop some sheep into my next picture. That, yeah. that's terrific. Good. Well, thank you, Sarah. Continued success. Thank you so much. Oh, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I'm so thankful to Sarah for spending some time with us in the deep night and for being so generous and open. And I do love youth pastor vibes. I've got to see if there's a church group I can zoom into. I might finally find my way back to the church if I could be a cool, older mentor type. I mean, I'm basically that for you now, (laughs) right? Anyway, loss and comedy. They just go together. You can pick up a copy of Sarah's book, Grand, a memoir, wherever you enjoy book buying, and I, I bet we'll continue some of these threads on future episodes. I remain very intrigued by this idea of structure. Also, I need to find those copper pants. I made a pair of pants out of actual copper once. It did not go well, but that's a story for another day. For now, enjoy winter, and remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. 
Deep Night with Dale is produced and performed by James Bewley. Season theme song by Mariam Cadus of Space Moth. Season podcast icon by Philippa Beleza. Incidental music heard throughout the program by the talented roster at Howler Hills Farm in Ohio. Remember to rate and review the program on Apple Podcasts or tune in and stream the show on Spotify, SoundCloud, Pandora, or Stitcher, wherever you find fine audio content. To see any of our live shows or other short videos, visit our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Radio, and follow us on Instagram at Seaver is the handle. Thanks again for listening, and remember this season to keep your portals open and at a safe distance.